Hi, and welcome to Science Distilled, a podcast based on the lecture series of the same name. It's where we break down concepts from cutting-edge science and research and learn how they apply to the world around us. I'm Michelle Matus. And I'm Paul Boger. For nearly a century, they've been at the forefront of science fiction. They've been both heroes and villains. Sometimes they're highly sophisticated and intelligent, while others are a bit more bumbly and even neurotic. We're talking, of course, about robots. Danger, Will Robinson! Danger! No, Will Robinson! Danger! Commander, what are you? An android. I'm Bender! You know, the lovable rascal! I'm the greatest! Woohoo! We'll be destroyed for sure! This is madness. I'll be back. And while it seems that robots that walk and talk have been around in movies, books, and cartoons for decades, the robots that we see around us in the world today don't quite measure up to their fictional counterparts. Yet. No, the robots we see around us are a bit more one-dimensional? Yeah, that may be a good word for it now, but not for much longer. Robotics has really evolved over the last couple of decades, and robots are no longer reserved solely for science labs and assembly lines. Nope. Nowadays, they're beginning to pop up everywhere. And in Reno, a company called Flirty has been testing automated drone delivery systems. And down in Vegas, you can buy a drink made exclusively by a robot. Yeah, but what about one that will, like, you know, clean your house? Where are those? Do you mean a Roomba? I mean something bigger that cleans the whole house. Remember the Jetsons? Flying cars, a boy named Elroy, Rosie the robot housekeeper. I want a Rosie. Well, suffice it to say, we're probably not going to see a robot like that for a number of years. At least not one that's commercially available to the masses like you and me. And that's because there's still just an astronomical number of issues that need to be worked out. And that very topic was discussed earlier this year at the Science Distilled Lecture Series produced by the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum and the Desert Research Institute, both in Reno, Nevada. Doctors Richard Kelly and David Files Cipher spoke at the event and afterward with KUNR about their work and what robotics may look like in the future. Dr. David Files Cipher, an associate professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Nevada, Reno, says that robots have a difficult time understanding any unpredictability. So, in some ways, robots are here right now. Right. Uh, so, most cars are manufactured, at least in part, by a robot. There are robots that work on assembly lines, but what's the key limiting factor of those robots is that they require the prior step to be done just so. And the car comes down the line, they do their one little bit of the job. If things are off the littlest bit, it can't do whatever it's designed to do. And so there are no humans that work on these assembly lines next to the robots because one th for one thing, the robot doesn't look to see if there's a person there. If you happen to get in the robot's way, that's really too bad for you uh, because it would hurt you. Um, and if you're, uh, the robots don't adapt to what a person does. To get robots that are, you know, uh, uh, Rosie uh, from the Jetsons uh, or, or, you know, other pop culture notions of what a robot is, Rosie is working in an incredibly unpredictable environment, not just because the Jetsons are a little nutty, but also because clutter in a room, you don't make a mess the exact same way on Tuesday that you do on Wednesday. Um, you don't leave your socks in exactly the same orientation. Uh, you don't leave exactly the same amount of objects out. And so to 
actually deal with the randomness and the changeability of the real world, uh, Rosie has to really be able to see what's going on and adapt to it in a real way. That's really hard. All right, but what about those delivery robots that Amazon's been using in California? Well, like Dr. Filecipher said, robots understand basic tasks fairly well. Pick up an object, move it here, drop it off. Those are fairly straightforward directions. However, when people become involved, those directions immediately become more complicated. Another group of scientists developed a robot that would deliver towels in a hospital, but it didn't quite work out. In one floor of the hospital, there were nurses that were supposed to be interacting with the robot, but the robot kept getting in people's way. And they didn't like that. They started giving the robot names, like bad names. I won't repeat them here names. Um, and British, so slightly funny names. Um, so, and they, they started getting, intentionally putting things in the robot's way to mess with it. And eventually they started just locking the robot in the closet whenever the experimenters weren't around because it was bugging them so much. That's not good. <laughs> Somebody somewhere paid money for that robot and it's in a closet. And it doesn't want to be in the closet. It wants to be, I think it was delivering towels. Um, and so there are complex social problems that, that, that this reveals. Um, so we wanted to try to address some of this stuff. We wanted to try to do what's called modeling of, of normal social behavior, human social behavior. And so what did we do? We got humans the best we could find. This was my PhD, so I got grad students, which is close. Um, I was a grad student once, and it was, I was a grad student at the time, it's okay. And we, we asked them to do things like walk, leading someone from one side of the room to the other. And we recorded this from an overhead camera, and we built what's called a model of uh, leading behavior, for example. Um, that's that model in the center. It's three uh, little Gaussians. Um, it's very simple. But we were able to use this model as part of the planner. Um, we want two objectives here. We want to solve two objectives. The first is get to the goal as fast as possible. This didn't show up so well, but there's a line that just goes from the triangle, which is our robot, to the X, which is its goal. And it's getting very close to a person. Um, the second goal is to obey social proxemic rules. You don't like people getting too close to you. All right? That's just personal space. We're used to having a little bit of space. And so we want to maybe not go inside that ellipse. Um, and so we're making a planner right now that tr maybe trades off that optimal path of getting to the goal as quickly as possible for obeying social norms and combines these two and can actually trade off them at different rates. So sometimes we want the robot to get there really fast. We can just stop this social norm stuff. Sometimes we want to make sure we absolutely don't hit anyone so we can just turn that side up. Um, but we can trade off how much of each objective we're following. And what happens is that if the robot's going straight down the hallway to get to a goal and it sees a person coming, maybe it moves a little bit to the right if the person's coming to the left. So robots have issues with personal space. Well, it's not just personal space. Robots and artificial intelligence, the actual computer systems that help robots better understand the world around them, are just not to the point where they're able to work for everyone. I thought this great robotic revolution was on its way, that automation was right around the corner and that robots were going to take over the workplace. Well, automation is on its way. There's little room for debate on that. But with those issues surrounding AI, it's much more likely that robots will take over in even more unexpected ways, even in our everyday lives. So where do you see robotics as a, as a field of study or as a 
career path, you know, where do you see it going in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? I think a lot of different places. I think, you know, automation is definitely something that's happening. Uh, how that impacts the individual job market, that's a really interesting question that we're talking to economists about to see what, what the appropriate thing to do is. Uh, but also how uh, entering our daily lives more and more is, is certainly going to be something that happens. And, and it's going to be, uh, I think it, in a lot of ways, it's going to be um, more unexpected. So we all carry around cell phones right now. Um, the way that your cell phone is able to give you a really fast reading on where you are at any given time isn't just GPS. It's the combination of GPS with other sensors like uh, the Wi-Fi signal on your phone combined with the inertial measurement unit that helps your phone understand if it's vertical or horizontal. The combination, the fusion of all those sensors uh, to create an estimate of where you are, that came out of the robotics world. Um, the way that cameras can detect people and make sure that a cell phone camera lens is always focused on the faces. Um, that's technology that came out of the robotics world. And so um, I think as robotics technology develops, it's going to go into many different commercial applications. Um, in addition to seeing more and more robots that look more and more like Rosie, uh, you also might see more intelligent factory robots that allow for humans and robots to collaborate on the assembly line. You might see robots working in hospitals to try to take some of the menial work that is distracting healthcare professionals from their current jobs and automating that away so that they are focusing more and more and more on patient care. Um, and I think you're going to see uh, remote monitoring technology like Fitbits, like uh, other sensors that we're getting more and more used to wearing on our bodies. Uh, working to working along with us uh, to give us better information about ourselves and and using that to improve uh, hopefully improve the quality of our daily lives so no Rosie from the near future but what about a self-driving car I'll settle for a self-driving car oh Paul buddy I should probably let Dr. Richard Kelly answer that. He was the second speaker at the Science Distilled Lecture Series and has been working as the senior engineer at the Nevada Center for Applied Research at UNR. So let's talk about cars. Uh, and first off, let's rewind. So in 2013, self-driving cars were going to be the next big thing. They were going to take over the world and they were going to do it in a year or two. And basically the story was that this was it. We weren't going to have to drive anymore. Um, and uh, everyone was pretty excited. Of course, I'm guessing almost everyone drove here tonight. So this didn't quite pan out. Fast forward to just last year, tragically, Elaine Herzberg was walking her bike across a road in Scottsdale, Arizona, and she was hit and killed by a self-driving car uh, run by Uber. The car was driving autonomously, and as far as anyone can tell, um, it just didn't see her, or it saw her but didn't think she was a person, or maybe it saw her, thought she was a person, changed its mind. Uh, but whatever was going on with the car, it did not break in time, it killed her, and that was the first major event where people said, wait, hold on, maybe these things aren't as great as we've been told. Uh, so uh, fast forward to just uh, the past week, um, I just searched for self-driving car in the news, and these were three of the top headlines. Ford CTO explaining why self-driving cars are so hard and they're not gonna happen anytime soon. 
Cruise, which is GM's self-driving division, promised that they would have self-driving cars on the road by the end of the year. They're being very quiet about that promise. And first ever picture of a black hole, still no picture of an actual self-driving car. <laughs> so the, the public opinion about self-driving vehicles has changed pretty dramatically uh, from just five years ago. So I want tonight to ask the question, why is driving so hard for a robot? People are really, really difficult for robots to understand. I mean, if picking up socks and recognizing different types of faces is really hard, imagine what operating a vehicle must be like. There's the car itself. Then there are other human drivers, pedestrians, cyclists, pets even. The situation becomes less predictable. And just like Dr. Filecipher mentioned, it's that unpredictability that causes issues. A lot of the... the ideas that were developed to help robots navigate. You know, for example, um, one of the main techniques that was used to get Apollo 11 to the moon and back uh, is something that's still used in robotics today on a daily basis. Um, but that, that method assumes that um, what you're tracking and what you're predicting um, doesn't have a mind of its own. Uh, it's just going to follow the laws of physics. Uh, and so um, getting a car to drive when it only has to worry about the laws of physics is actually fairly straightforward. Um, but humans, you know, humans react. So if I uh, am driving and I inch forward, the car in front of me is going to hopefully notice that and they're going to inch forward too. So it's this, this dynamic between what you are doing, what choices you make and everyone else that leads to this, this complicated dance that the system really has to predict. Humans are good at it because we have a whole lifetime of experience interacting with others that we can bring with us when we sit in the driver's seat. Cars, you know, computers don't have any of that, so it has to either be programmed, which is really not very practical, or learned, uh, which is what we focus on. The robot has to perceive the world around it, make a plan about what it's going to do next, and then it has to successfully follow that plan. Perception, planning, and control. And that's exactly what humans do. We process that information and make decisions instinctively. Computers, not so much. As humans, when we're driving, we're not just, you know, the first time you got in a car to drive, uh, you, you weren't experiencing the road for the very first time. You were coming into the experience of driving with the experience of being a passenger. You'd probably spent years sitting in the passenger seat or in the back seat of a car. You have walked around, and so you have the experience of being a pedestrian. You know what pedestrians are typically doing when they're walking on the sidewalk because you have had that experience yourself. And so my answer to how to make self-driving cars really work is you have to combine learning with the stuff that we've already talked about. And so there's actually a branch of artificial intelligence that's dealt with this for a long time called reinforcement learning. Uh, the idea is basically just trial and error. Once the robot begins to understand its world, developers can move past the engineering and programming elements and onto developing those problem-solving issues. Right. It's a branch of artificial intelligence called machine learning. Uh, and the idea is really, it's very simple. It's, it's just very similar in concept to human learning. You show the computer lots of examples of the right thing to do. Uh, and then there are algorithms that will take those examples and try to generalize from them to uh, correct behavior in general. Let me guess. Even though scientists have figured out this process, it's still not an easy thing for computers to grasp. Bingo. So what's it going to take to move self-driving cars, or even robots in general, out of the realm of science fiction and into reality? For one, a lot more time. I'm really hopeful that I see it in my lifetime. Um, what, I'm, what, I can, what I can say with a complete confidence is that 
the the robots that we have now that that work you know, imagine like a Roomba uh, yeah. as a vacuum cleaner those are going to get much 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 better uh, and we'll start to see uh, much more capable robots to perform individual tasks um, that and they'll do those things very 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 well um, a sort of a general purpose robot that you could maybe even have a conversation with I, maybe a hundred years uh, it's it's one of those things where we really don't understand how intelligence works. Um, at all. And even building an AI that does two things really, really well, or, or maybe, you know, does one thing really well, but then learns how to do something else is still extremely difficult. And so building a system that can sort of be placed down anywhere and figure out how to do stuff, uh, which is, I think, what you would need for these sort of rosy vision um, is, is a long ways away. In other words, no self-driving cars, and no robot housekeepers, at least in the near future. It's still early days for robotics, but the field is quickly growing. According to the International Federation of Robotics, more than 380,000 industrial robots were sold in 2018. And current estimates suggest that sales may climb to as much as 550,000 annual sales by the end of 2020. That's a lot of robots. And one of the biggest issues facing companies that are investing heavily in robotics is whether they'll have a workforce able to program and maintain those machines. To address those concerns, many groups have been working over the past several years to develop programs that will help get more students interested in STEM. That's science, technology, education, and math. As a matter of fact, just earlier this year, the Desert Research Institute, with funding from Tesla, started the Robotics Academy of Nevada. The aim is to train teachers from across the state how to build and program basic robots so they, in turn, can take those skills back to their schools and help get kids excited about those possible careers. You know, I actually visited the program while it was here in Northern Nevada and spoke to some of the teachers about their experience and what they hope to take away from it. We're over here, we learned a bit about robotics and now we are building the robot. We're building something that's going to pick up wiffle balls and put them in a bucket, we hope. That's Joe Sherwood, a teacher at Spring Creek Christian Academy outside of Elko, one of the teachers enrolled in the program. I plan to start a class. Actually, we have what's called an elective period, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. This is going to be a class, and we're going to have a team and compete. The kids don't know it yet. They're going to be learning a lot this year. This is going to, we're going to compete. As demand for STEM careers has increased in recent years, many schools have started developing robotics programs. Craig Rosen is with DRI, and he says the ultimate goal is to help train students for the jobs of the future, jobs that may involve working with robots. We're really uh, trying to inspire our teachers to bring robotics into their classroom, really to get the kids excited about robots um, so that we can uh, generate the future of the, of the workforce, right? We need to stay ahead of the game. I mean, you can imagine 15 years from now when these kids are going to be entering the workforce, the jobs that they're going to be taking don't even exist today. So they need to be those creative thinkers those, those, and unleash the creative mind so that they can develop and create and inspire and build. Um, but the, the jobs that we have now are going to be gone and they're going to be replaced by robots and automation. So the more students get involved with these types of programs, the more likely that one day they'll be able to solve some of the problems plaguing the robotics industry. Take Larson Rivera, for example. He's a senior at McQueen High School in Reno, and through his school's robotics team, he's developed a passion for it. 
Actually, I'd, I would love to continue either going into computer science, electrical engineering, or mechanical engineering, because for me, it's just, it's such a fun field. I love tinkering with stuff. I love uh, seeing all the technology out in the world and looking at it and going, how does that work? Because we rely on it so much in our lives, it really seems like, oh, is there, should we know a little bit more about that instead of just always trusting 100% of the time or when something inevitably breaks, how do we fix it? So that's why I love exploring it is because it also helps me better understand where the world is going and how we can use that to our advantage. The Robotics Academy of Nevada trained roughly 200 teachers in this first year. With any luck, we'll have plenty of future roboticists helping to develop your self-driving car. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Science Distilled. If you have any comments or questions, let us know. We're on hiatus until the fall when we'll talk about how agriculture has affected groundwater supplies and how we find justice for damage to our shared water resources. And we also wanted to give a big thank you to everyone who helped turn the Science Distilled lecture series into a podcast. First and foremost, thanks to our editor, Michelle Billman, and also to the teams at the Desert Research Institute and the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum. Until next time, I'm Michelle Matus. And I'm Paul Boger.